Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I'm very excited to introduce, as part of our Pride podcast series, Dr. Travis Salway. Travis is a social worker and social epidemiologist who tries to understand how and why queer people experience higher rates of mental distress, including suicide and anxiety, as compared with heterosexual people. He is an assistant professor of health sciences at Simon Fraser University, where he has received a Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research Award. He also works with the British Columbia Center for Disease Control, the Community-Based Research Center, and the Center for Gender and Sexual Health Equity, who I also work with, which is great. In 2019, Travis gave testimony to the Canadian House of Commons Standing Committee of Health, specifically calling for a re-examination of conversion therapy practices in Canada. He has since worked with conversion therapy survivors to better describe where, how, and why conversion therapy continues to occur in Canada. I am so excited to have you here today, Travis. Thank you, Carmen. I'm excited to be here. So I just read out a really uh, comprehensive summary of your work. So I wonder how you would describe it if you're in an elevator. An elevator is going up a couple of floors and someone said, hey, Travis, what do you kind of do with your, your life and your work? What would you say? That's a tough one because, as you might know, saying that I research stigma or I research social epidemiology doesn't necessarily land well. (laughs) Um, But I try to talk a little bit about social experiences that I think all of us have had with queer people. Mm. I try to explain that, you know, not only through research, because I'm an epidemiologist and I'm interested in looking at the data, but just through personal experiences as I've aged into my 30s. I notice in my peer groups, my friends around me, that a lot of people are struggling, and myself included. And I wonder sometimes how much of that has to do with how we're socialized as queer people. Mm, That's great. I think a lot of people listening, especially in Pride Month right now, will understand that. So if if I was going to show up and you live in Vancouver, which I was supposed to be spending the month with you all there this month, but... Thanks we're missing COVID. you. <laughs> Thanks to COVID, we're all at home, most of us anyways, or at least we're not traveling. So say I was going to come to your beautiful city by the ocean and the mountains and <laughs> where there's very little snow, except when I flew there last, last year. <laughs> and I was going to show up with a time machine to your house and there was space for both of us and we could be uh, uh, practicing physical distancing. Um, And I say, Travis, what made you start this passion and focus on queer people's mental health or maybe conversion therapy specifically? Because I I think there must have been some sort of spark that, that led you to this journey you're on. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I have two answers. Okay. First of all, I'm do excited. Do we get to go to two places? So yes. we're like, it's like yes. a, what do you call it? Um, you get around the world ticket and you have like a, a stopover. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm, I'm very excited to take you first to Ohio, 1989. Uh, so I grew up in the Midwest. I didn't and, know that. You're from yeah, the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. I grew I up in, in, in Western Ohio in a small town. Uh, it was kind of a farming turned factory town in, in the night. By the 1980s, we had three big manufacturing plants in town. Everyone in my family was in one way or another connected to these factories. And I would say the where I grew up, sexuality was stigmatized. Minority sexuality, like being queer, being bisexual or lesbian, okay, was stigmatized not so much in that it was you were mocked or ostracized for being queer. It just was not in any way uh, mentioned or condoned. It was completely Mm. silenced. And so when I was growing up, I think my assumption through both my experiences as a Catholic and my conversations with teachers and classmates and family members was just that there was just one option. That was it. Mm -hmm. So I never experienced conversion therapy, although in my teens, I was aware of conversion therapy practitioners in my hometown. And they wouldn't have framed it as, oh, we're going to make you straight. They would have Mm -hmm. framed it as, you're kind of veering from the path of a good Christian life, and we're going to help get Mm. you back on the right path. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would say from an early age, I really... In a way, I didn't, quote unquote, need conversion therapy because I had a really fixed idea of what my adulthood would look like. And let me tell you, it does not look like that at all. (laughs) So, okay. So your fixed idea is not what happened. No, no. (laughs) So in 98, I moved to uh, San Francisco for college and I was introduced to the hedonist lifestyles that we were all warned against. Uh, I (laughs) I love that city. That city is so (laughs) awesome. It's an amazing city. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, I mean, I think like already by, by university, when I was studying social work, I knew that I was interested in what it is about us as queer people that we keep bumping up against all of these social expectations and norms. But the second place I'll take you is... Okay. Like, so does, does this count? Like, because we kind of went to Ohio and then San Francisco. So I feel like there's a multiple stop oh, on this time machine. I like this. We're going all over. <laughs> Well, the next place we're going to go is back to your hometown of Toronto because... Oh, my hometown um, is a small town like yours. Where's your hometown? (laughs) Um, Port Elgin on Lake Huron. It's by the Bruce Nugo Power Plant. So it's also a a place where um, people... Uh, actively bullied and made fun of people okay. who were um, gender non-conforming. So if you were a girl who looked masculine, or, but especially if you were a boy that had any kind of feminine traits, hmm. there was a lot of like calling people, quote, faggots and beating them up. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was fun. Redneck, high school, small town farms. Like, so I totally understand. Like, it was also silenced in some ways, but then uh, with the gender nonconformity, very uh, policed. So right. I, Toronto is not my hometown, but I've been here since 94. Well, often on since 94. So I, I, I say I'm from Toronto, but if people are like, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from a small town. Oh, so this is, this is fascinating because neither of us wore those identities on our sleeves because I've known you for a few years now and I didn't know you were yeah. from a small town and <laughs> same for you and me. So yeah, I'm also, I mean, we're not here to talk about this or maybe we are, but I also find that whole kind of queer migration really fascinating. Oh, um, I don't think there's one out gay person in my hometown that I've heard of at least. 
Yeah. Yes, yeah, same for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you came to Toronto, which Toronto. I'm currently living in. I love Toronto. <laughs> yes, and um, the the person who introduced us, actually, my PhD supervisor, Dion Guessing. Um, yes. When I, when I landed in Toronto to do my PhD, I was intending to do a PhD project focused on spatial epidemiology of syphilis. Oh. Uh, because as you know, Dion does a lot of research looking at spatial epi and yes. sexually transmitted infections. A world so, leader. We'll give a world shout out to Dr. Leader. Dion Gessink, U of T uh, Public Health. I'll tell her <laughs> to listen to this episode. Yes, yes. I tell everyone to look up her work. Yeah, it inspired me and it's what brought Dion and me together. But when I got there, I had become really fascinated by looking at statistics both in Canada and elsewhere around suicide outcomes in gay men. And really some of the first conversations I had with Dion after I got to Toronto, she didn't even hesitate. She said, this this, this should be your PhD. You're passionate about this. You're curious about this. Uh, this is what's driving your interests. And I said, well, no, I've, this was my application and this is what I'm funded to do. And she, I really credit her because she really pushed, she saw that there was something that interested me. And, and since then, I would say the focus of my research projects have changed, but they're all driven by that same curiosity. What is going on that we as queer people continue to face at different stages in our lives, continue to p- face these pressures outward and inward that seem to affect our, our mental well-being. And so, you know, conversion therapy really just came up in that context when I went to give uh, a statement to the House of Commons Standing Committee last year when they were doing a fuller investigation of federal policy and LGBTQ2 health. I asked the parliamentary clerk, what do you want me to speak to? And she said, well, we, we understand the statistics. We understand, for instance, that queer people are four times more likely to have attempted suicide, which is a statistic that still gives me chills when I talk mm-hmm. about it. It's, it's, there's something socially, epidemiologically, generally just not right about that. And yeah, you're... I was going to say, because I think you're about to answer my first question. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, oh, this is leading us into, I think, okay, first of all, I also want you to define what conversion therapy is. Yes. But I think that what we're talking about now and what you were presenting um, to the government is why we all should care, like, about stigma yeah. for queer people, why it yeah. matters. Because when you said there's four times high rates of suicide. Is that among gay men or among um, queer people in general? That is queer people in general. So, uh, and I should, that statistic mostly comes from federally funded surveys uh, in a number of countries, predominantly the U.S. And typically the way they've historically measured what I would call sexual minority status is by asking, are you lesbian or gay or bisexual? Okay. Um, Because wouldn't you think that if there was a town that had suicide rates four times higher, we'd all be like, what's going on in that town? Like, is it it a really stressful town? Is there a lot of like unemployment? Is it like, what is going on? We need to figure out and solve this problem because four times higher is, and then, and then that could just be multiplied because, you know, I work in um, the Northwest Territories too. And so what does it mean? How does that intersect with other forms of marginalization that are associated also with suicide? But that's sort of another tangent. 
But maybe before we go further, you can define or describe, because I know what conversion therapy is. I just worry that maybe there's some people listening who are like, what does that mean? So, well, this is a really opportune time to be talking about the definition of conversion therapy, because just yesterday, less than 24 hours ago, the Calgary City Council voted to pass a municipal bylaw to ban conversion therapy. Now, Calgary's not, which is fantastic. Yay! Yay! Go Calgary! Calgary. I lived there for one year, like YYC. Good work. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I listened really carefully to both the council debates yesterday over the the proposed bylaw, and more importantly, the public citizen debates that happened two weeks ago. And these went on, hundreds of citizens called in to voice their opinions on conversion therapy over the course of two days. And I mean, to be honest, it was heartbreaking because people who had survived conversion therapy were forced yet again to call in and publicly share Mm. stories that were painful, humiliating, in order to get the city to act on this issue. But from a research perspective, this was really informative because I realized everyone has a different definition of conversion therapy. And the problem we're having with these laws, and I should mention, this is only going to continue to become more of an issue because the federal government, the liberals have tabled a bill, Bill C-8, to ban conversion therapy. um, And we'll probably see it come forward for public debate later this year. Oh, great. So, I mean, we could even have you back (laughs) your involvement in this policy change that would be amazing so yeah so can you give us some examples like yeah well i would say of of like how you define it for the listener so i would say for me conversion therapy is any sustained practice or attempt to deny or suppress or even even to like push someone in a direction away from an outcome or an identity that's lesbian gay bisexual queer uh, or two-spirit or a gender identity that's different from their sex mm-hmm. and at birth. And I separate them intentionally because conversion therapy for queer people and conversion therapy for trans people has some really important differences in terms of where it shows up uh, and how people experience it. And that's something that I've been learning over the last year and talking to survivors and is a real struggle for us in figuring out how do we yes, enact legislation that will um, start to get at the quote-unquote bad actors who continue to perpetrate conversion therapy, but also how do we create environments where it doesn't happen in the first place? Yeah, exactly. I wonder, because I I know I have two friends in the U.S., both men, who as high school students were sent to conversion therapy, I think in different states. Um, My understanding is that they were held by religious folks. So it was like religious counseling about not being gay, like trying to change people's attractions, same, same gender attractions and things like that. Are you, I guess you, you're like an expert in this area. So is all conversion therapy rooted in religion or is there some that's non-religious? Yeah. That's a great question. So there are surveys, recent and ongoing, in the U.S. and Canada, uh, including TransPulse, including SexNow. And we're currently doing interviews with conversion therapy survivors Mm. across Canada. I I would say definitely there is a religious element, and we heard that in the Calgary debates. The people who were really speaking out and defending these practices were saying it's a matter of religious freedom that if my child expresses what they would say, they would call it unwanted same-sex attraction, I should be able to help them manage that in a way that's consistent with my faith. There's definitely a religious element, and we can't ignore that. Exodus International, which is the largest organization kind of undergirding conversion therapy practices in North America, is fundamentally a, a Christian organization. 
information. That said, yeah, there's examples. And in the interviews we're doing, we've talked to a number of people who saw psychiatrists, psychologists, oh, wow. and counselors. Sometimes they're unlicensed. Some of the most prominent ones, certainly the ones who would be most vocal in advertising their services would not have a license because if they did, they would be going against the professional bodies okay. uh, in terms of their recommendations. I just want to mention one of the survivors that I've worked with a lot over the last year who's been really influential both to my own understanding of conversion therapy and to policy, particularly in Ontario, and that's Erica Muse. So Erica went through a form of conversion therapy that is really discredited by experts in, in gender-affirming care and trans care, um, but that for a long time was the only way you could access transition-related care in, in Ontario. So, and, and this was through the Center for Addictions and Mental Health in Toronto. And her experience was practiced by a psychologist. And I don't yet, I think our, our colleagues at Transpulse probably have a better idea of this. I don't yet have a firm grasp on how much that form of conversion therapy is still happening across Canada, but I would be surprised if it isn't there in some form. And what it looks like is basically a series of quote-unquote therapies, psychological tests and queries to try to uh, dissuade that person from transitioning to a gender identity that's different from their sex at birth. Uh, wow. I, I actually never heard of it in relationship to gender identity. So thank you for mm -hmm. educating me and, and the listeners. So I want to know in a nutshell, what was the essence of your argument to the government? Like how did mm -hmm. you, what was your approach to, to tell them they should care about queer people's mental health and stigma as a determinant of that? And maybe you were asked to specifically talk about conversion therapy. What was your kind of nutshell argument to them, why it matters, why we should all care? Well, I'll tell you what I told them, and then I'll tell you what I wish I told them. <laughs> oh, which, good. Which, I love you? that. I actually love, in my talks lately, I've been, I have some talks where I totally discuss my mistakes, and yeah. it's like, I love it. I'm like, oh, this is what I wanted to do, and then the community said I shouldn't, and then, and look what I would have missed if I had done what I wanted to do. And they're like my favorite talks, because I think our process of learning needs to be more exposed. Totally. Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, if we were all honest about research, that's exactly the story we would tell. <laughs> none of us oh, go through I this. Wish I, I'm like always the person that's like, I, it takes me a minute to think of a good response. And then often the, the time has passed. And I'm like, or like at night, I'm like, I should have said that. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, man. <sighs> I'm not like a quick witted, like <laughs> response, like great. Right I'm not either. That person. Okay. So tell me what you said and then what you wished you had said. The timeline for this is kind of important because they started their hearings um, at the, the Standing Committee of Health in, in March or beginning of April of 2019. And in February, Sherry Benson, who's a, a member of parliament from S Saskatchewan, had just proposed a federal bill on conversion therapy. And uh, the government responded to that bill by saying two things. One, this is not a matter for the federal government to deal with. It's actually about health care. So it's up to the provinces to sort this out. And two, they said we already have in the criminal code uh, ways to actually prosecute people who are kidnapping 
or, or torturing other people. And that was their defense for why not to do it. And that immediately to me on the surface didn't make any sense because we know a lot of conversion therapy is not happening in healthcare. And we or know that kidnappings. Or a lot of people aren't kidnapped. In fact, I think the modal case is, you know, um, you know, someone like myself who was a teenager who thought, well, there's no way I could be both gay and happy and healthy walks into uh, you know, a practitioner's office and says, help me with this. So yeah, I knew right away that argument didn't hold water. And I wanted, uh, I wanted them to re-examine the issue, basically. And the way I did it as an epidemiologist is I brought data. So mm-hmm. I brought, well, I should say, I say epidemiologist, but I do more quant research, but I, I include a lot of qualitative research, which we, I think you have to for questions mm-hmm. like these. So I brought survey data that we had showing how many Canadians had experienced conversion therapy, including in, re- in the recent year. And how many, I mean, you probably don't well, know now, offhand. <laughs> I do, I do. So we think at least 50,000. Are you like five zero, like 50,000? Yes. yes. Are you serious today? Yes. Like 2019? Yes. I thought this was like something that was decades ago. Wow. No, honestly, I hadn't realized how big of an issue it was either. And I think the reason we don't know, my interpretation for why we don't know comes from the qualitative data. So once I talked to conversion therapy survivors with very few exceptions, like my my colleagues, Erica Muse and and Matt Ashcroft, most survivors don't want to speak up about it. They don't want to, in fact, a lot of them don't want to talk about it. One of the um, participants we had in, in, in our study that's ongoing said he'd never told anyone before, not even boyfriends who were very close and open and would have responded positively just because he had internalized a sense of shame about it. So so people are not only experiencing stigma, and we'll get to that in the next question more, but in in the process of experiencing this quote-unquote therapy that's trying to convince them not to be gay or same gender loving attracted but then they that somehow gets inside of them and that's internalized and then to the point where they won't even tell their partners that's that wow that's really profound yes this really parallels that double stigma parallels something that i learned when we were doing research with suicide attempt survivors who were queer because suicide is also stigmatized so you know i think we have this well we I think some people have this general notion that like the trajectory is you struggle with your sexuality and then you finally come out and yay, you march into the gay village and everyone welcomes you with open rainbow and the reality, as you know, is really different. Uh, we, we actually bring with us into the gay quote unquote gay village. I mean, I want to acknowledge that most of us don't live in a gay village, but you Who know. can afford that <laughs> exactly. Even the gay restaurants. I mean, so sad with COVID, like so many of the yes. gay owned businesses are like, like it's all going to just be condos it's like tragic (laughs) it is yeah but yeah wherever we end up you know we bring with us other stigmas and other traumas that include things like histories of suicide attempts and substance use and conversion therapy and difficulties relating with romantic or sexual partners and I, I and so I think you know I mean I don't want to paint a grim picture there's also beautiful things happening sometimes I think even because of all of that you know interesting histories we bring with us but it does mean you're right that people then experience a second stigma where they feel like you know what maybe I'm not going to talk about this issue haven't I had enough points against me in life yeah and so I mean talking about suffering especially when it's 
around acceptance and change. I think we're all on different, or I don't know, I could speak for myself, different journeys of self-acceptance. And then you're always coming out isn't just like one time. It's like a constant process of, you know, wherever you are traveling, things like that. So this is like a lot, I think, navigating the world as a queer person that we are always needing to kind of bolster our self-esteem in a world that's really heteronormative. So I can see that, you know, I can see yeah. I might not want to be like, oh, let me just put that bag of like pain in that closet. Totally. Like get it totally. <laughs> so I think the members of parliament were also shocked. Everyone I talked to, for, except for the survivors um, and the people close mm. to them, are shocked. And I think, so that was what I tried to convey to them is this is still happening. And then, oh my God, they had all kinds of questions. Well, where is it happening? And at what age? And who's being forced? And who's being sent across the border to the U.S.? And um, wow. and the, a lot of those were questions I wasn't prepared to answer. And in fact, I think very few people were pre- prepared to answer. And so now I've been trying to answer those questions so that when this bill comes up for debate, we're a little bit more, or I'm a little bit more prepared. But the way, the way I would have answered that question is because there was something, um, there was a kind of an underlying assumption or premise to their question, which was this. And I hear it, especially from straight people, but sometimes queer people too, all the time. Oh my God, we live in Canada. This is such an amazing place to be today. That's because they, they didn't grow up in a small town like us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, they'll say, you know, um, you know, oh, uh, you know, we have same-sex marriage and we've added um, sexual orientation to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and gender identity and expression. Mind you, how long did that take? But the difference is those are all... For instance, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms just says, you know, you can't discriminate against someone for being queer. Well, that's a pretty low bar. I mean, I would have hoped we could have, I don't think we should be patting ourselves on the back for having a society that doesn't tolerate discrimination against someone for the same Especially because discrimination is one part of this larger animal of stigma. It's like- That's it tip of the iceberg it's that's not right. like all of our norms our expectations our assumptions about who you that's are right. who you can be and the, you know it's really interesting that they're like oh you can't i just actually discriminate you can still have negative values opinions <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and and so i think actually that's you know when the federal government was asking in this um you know house of House of Commons Standing Committee study on LGBTQ2 health, when they're asking, well, what more could we do as the federal government? Um, I think the conversion therapy question, it doesn't necessarily give a clear answer, but it, it brings up a conversation about what I think this um, issue offers. And that is, it's not just about should we tolerate queer and trans people, like should we, should we protect them from discrimination, but it's about do we actually want them here? Are they, are we part of society? Um, do we think that LGBTQ2 identities and lives are compatible with being happy and healthy? Because that's the question that's being asked when someone considers conversion mm. therapy. Is this a viable life course for me or do I need to stay on the straight yes. life path? Travis, this leads right into my second question on stigma. Just okay. Okay. what does stigma look like for queer people? What is happening to queer people from the context of not being valued, not seeing this being a viable life course trajectory, what does that look like that would make mm-hmm. people be more likely to die by suicide, to experience 
um, mental health challenges. Because I have a sense of what you said about conversion therapy and what that might look like. But with your other work that looks at mental health and suicidality, and I know it's, you know, you've been widely published in this area. What do you think is happening? What is going on in that person's life that they think this is a, the viable option is not just living a happy life. It is actually come to this point. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I like the, the, um, the pyramid or the iceberg metaphor you used earlier. I think discrimination is thankfully um, like overt discrimination where mm-hmm. people say, I mean, like I had this experience when I first moved to Canada and I was living in Montreal. I had, well, not a landlord. It was someone who was going to rent a parking space to me. And I came with my partner at the time and, and he didn't know obviously from the phone that I was gay. But once I was there with my partner and I introduced him as this is mm-hmm. my partner and he had a confused look on his face. And then he was taking to show, taking me and my partner to see this, this parking spot that we were going to rent. <laughs> and then we got to the parking spot. I mean, literally standing right in front of it. He said, well, this isn't available anymore. Oh my uh, God. And rented. And then. It's and, a parking and, spot. It's like ridiculous. Oh my well, God. It's, it's like. It's so important. Uh, you need a bigger <laughs> parking spot. I mean, our car isn't gay. It's just us. <laughs> Are you sure? Have you asked if they're, have you really explored the sexuality of your car? <laughs> It is contagious, you know. Yeah, the car. What color was your car? Was it like a bright <laughs> this is a pink? This is a very masculine green car, which hmm. shows you that I didn't pick it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, my goodness. So what did you do? Well, that's not the end of it. He, oh. After he said that, he reached into his shirt pocket. Like, he had this preloaded. He reached into his shirt pocket, and he pulled out a pamphlet about the way to Jesus. And it it was actually explicitly talked about what to do about, you know, this issue of unwanted same-sex attraction. No. Yeah, I was livid. I just, you know, I actually, I said to him directly, so we're not getting the parking spot because we're gay. And then he he kind of backpedaled (laughs) and he kind of stumbled around. And my partner, who's much cooler and calmer at at the time, was just, you know, was just like, okay, let's get out of the situation. And I was just, I- Are you a Leo? What's your sign? I am a Leo. I'm a Leo too. so funny i really get along well with leo's like almost like i'd say a good like three quarters of my close friends are leo so i was like i feel like we're the same here <laughs> is your partner a cancer you know what i don't remember his sign <laughs> that's I'm, such a leo I'm thing a bad gay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but i think you know they want you you're like okay if you want me to go to wherever jesus is i'm gonna need my car to be parked <laughs> you know <laughs> Where am I going to keep it? That's, that's, wow. I am. Yeah. In in Montreal too. This tells you like, even, even, I think people think cities are like all of. Oh yeah. It's great for, for queer people. Like the whole city. Now like cities are very, you know, there's lots of different areas in cities. Oh, exactly. It's a (laughs) very uneven space. By where I live (laughs) in Toronto. And, you know, remember what I said about my hometown, you know, in a way, I think, although this would be different in 2020, but, you know, in 1989, um, people didn't read gay because no one really thought about gay. But in cities, people think about gay. So, you know, Mm. it it didn't, I don't think that that gentleman who was renting out his parking spot had to think very hard to understand what it meant when I said partner. He wasn't like, does he mean business partner? He was like, oh, (laughs) these are, these are some of those. I saw this meme somewhere where they said like, partner, it can be a business partner. It can be your lover. It can be like someone you ride, like you're a cowboy with or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very ambiguous term. (laughs) The best kind of partner. (laughs) 
yeah, so thankfully, that level of discrimination where it's really overt and in my face has only happened to me maybe a handful of times in my life. But earlier you said something that I think thought on that's a much more common and everyday experience for queer people, which is that question of like, do I come out when, where, mm-hmm. why, to whom? And even now I'm 39 years old. I have a professor job. At Congratulations. Thank Woo-hoo! you. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and by the way, a job that I got with a job talk that was expressly about queer people. So, I mean, there's no, like, like there's no hiding in yeah, my definitely. job. I'm, I'm definitely out. And I still have that question. I still have that question in the back of my head when I'm going into a meeting, like, oh, do I mention this thing that will reveal my sexuality? Um, and I think all of us do this question every day. You have to make questions. Do I hold my boyfriend's hand? Yeah. Do I m- reference this thing that will signal to them my sexual orientation? And, and it's that a privilege. Creates- and I, I think... I- always note this when I'm on the subway in Toronto, depending on where you get on the subway. And I mean, where I, I'm up at Eglinton Weston, we're waiting for the subway. We bought like seven years in advance of the subway. <laughs> you know, Toronto. It'll be great when it gets there. <laughs> when it comes, we watch it every day. But I'm like, oh, there's so many like straight couples making out, holding hands, their arms around each other. And it's a privilege that I don't think that they are even aware of. Like being able to hold your partner's hand and kiss or like cuddle as you're waiting on the street corner. And maybe you're okay doing that in parts of Toronto, like the Annex, the Gay Village, maybe Queen, Queen West. But I live at Eglinton and Weston. Uh, we're not walking around holding hands up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We walk beside each other and the neighbors all know we live in a house together and we're partners, but we don't, it's not a place where holding two, a uh, same gender couple uh, could, could not hold hands and feel great and yeah. safe. And that is in Toronto. <laughs> so yeah. it's like there's diversity <laughs> acceptance, even within a city. I think that people might overlook that and think yeah. like, oh, it's all good, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And I think all of that plays in the back of our minds. Um, You know, you don't have to be handed a pamphlet and denied a parking space to know that, (laughs) you know, you, you could get uh, a nasty word or worse hurled at you. And so, yeah, that, you know, as you know, in, uh, in academic speak, we talk about that as minority stress. And I don't think it's the only explanation for the issues that we're talking about, in particular, suicide outcomes. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a major one, that those stressors build up over time and they lead to feelings of uncertainty or worse, feeling hopeless. Or, you know, they lead to coping strategies that aren't always good for us, like, for instance, avoiding other people. So, mm-hmm. you know, isolation, loneliness is a real issue for queer people. And I do believe that that is a product of having uh, to, to, to stay safe. You might mm-hmm. have avoided social interactions. I still do it with my family. I might avoid a large family gathering where there is some random distant relatives that I can't trust Mm-hmm. not say something homophobic. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, even if you think a lot of people that I, I think, <laughs> this is my perception of straight people, a lot of people create these um, friendships in childhood and adolescence yes. that they keep. <laughs> but yes. for a lot of queer people who who maybe didn't come out in high school or or receive acceptance in high school, then it's about making brand new friendships in adulthood that are queer, positive, and supportive because social isolation is 
is really profound and it profoundly impacts our mental health, our physical health in, in ways that you're right, I think can just add up um, to the feeling of, of not being valued, not being accepted, not being a part of society. I really appreciate what you said with regards to the government and your testimony, which was okay, I think we want to more than tolerate uh, gay and queer folks' existence. I think we need to be celebrated as being amazing and equally valuable and visible. I still, to this yes. day, I have never found, and it, it, listeners, if you've, if you've found this, let me know, any lesbian, bisexual, or queer woman's movie with a happy ending of huh? lesbian, bisexual, and queer people like women, what women being with other women, not leaving the person for a guide. Tell me if there's being heartbroken, we can't just have happy endings of two women in love with each other. I don't know. Maybe there's a whole realm of queer women's films. I mean, I remember when I saw, I saw the love Simon and I was like, Oh my God, it's mainstream. And it's so good. I watched it like three times, Yeah, yeah. you know, but I don't, and that's just so recent where we can see yeah, happy, yeah. fun. I think that that representation and, and I mean, then we have to look at, you know, also representation of race, age, ability and queerness, you know, with a happy ending. I only like, yeah. I only like movies that have happy endings. So okay. like, <laughs> oh no. I always get ripped off. I don't want to read a book with a sad <laughs> ending. I'm like, no, now I have to watch like some dog rescue videos to like make up for like being depressed at the end of a two hour movie. I'm like, no. <laughs> that is, I just feel like that we're still not equally represented on TV. In TV, well, I don't really watch TV, but like, I yeah. love Sex Education that show, and I love Shit's yes. Creek. That was awesome. Oh, I love Shit's Creek. God, I'm just like, why does it have to end? But I feel kind of silly for not having noticed this as someone who researches queer people's mental health and experiences of stigma and discrimination. But I'm almost through season five, and it didn't occur to me until a friend mentioned. Like that society they've created is completely devoid of not, homophobia, transphobia. Intentionally. It's, it's just, it's just every time I'm expecting a, a negative reaction, it doesn't happen. Exactly. And it's intentionally made that way. So Dan Levy, I'm a major fan. If you'd like to come on this podcast, I would be honored. That would be wonderful. I'm going to like tag him in this conversation. Yeah. Come on, Dan. How could he say no? I know. Come on. You've created this. It's a world. natural thought. Fo- and didn't, didn't one of your other guests talk about the show? I mean, you're basically doing yeah, unpaid advertising. I am, I am definitely advertising. <laughs> uh, so I want to go to the final stigma question. Sure. Which is, and I think we're segueing nicely because we're thinking about Shit's Creek. Dan, yeah. see, we're, we're, we're plugging your, your show here. As, as a way of imagining solutions in, in, in that example it's really about representation and and modeling what does family acceptance look like what does friends acceptance look like what does people figuring out that sexuality is fluid and changing look like so it's really giving us an example how what would you say to the listeners about how they can be part of changing society so that there is not higher rates of suicide among queer folks that that people see themselves reflected and valued and that there's no conversion therapy needed because who would want to change being queer or so fabulous <laughs> yes yes yeah i'm thinking about that a lot every day because we like i said we have this federal bill on the table and it looks 
like a good step. It's not perfect. We have work to do on it. But it's like a good step toward removing some forms of conversion therapy in Canada. I, I, I think we need bills that, that both remove those really terrible experiences of um, uh, things like conversion therapy. But the, for instance, the federal bill is really about criminalizing conversion therapy. And I don't think we can really, well, I'll borrow a phrase from our friend Alex McClellan, who was on your show. He's I don't so think we- amazing. Alex, we're giving you a shout out right now. Alex, Alex you're awesome. Dr. Alex work. McClellan. Yeah, we can't police our way out of this. I mean, I don't think we can police our way out of anything, right? And I, and you know, as someone who works and studies in public health, I really believe that the most effective solutions start by making it easy for people to make choices that are good for them, good for their health. In this case, we're talking about things like suicide and anxiety and substance use. And the way to do that, I think, to go back, I think what I hear a lot in talking to conversion therapy survivors and the people who work with them is that conversion therapy becomes compelling, particularly for young people, but not only, because that person is in distress. So take, for example, this modal case of a teenager who goes to the school counselor and just says, you know what, I'm really, like, I'm, I'm really freaking out here. You know, I think I might be gay. I don't know what to do about this. And when the child expresses distress, and the only thing that that parent or school counselor or pastor knows to do is to push them into a heterosexual life, Mm -hmm. i.e. conversion therapy, then yeah, conversion therapy seems really compelling. So we have to give people alternatives. Um, And I think the way we do that in terms of what do those of us do who are wanting to support a cause or wanting to give some money or wanting to put our voice into uh, different policies, I think we need comprehensive queer and trans affirming sex ed mm, across Canada. Great. I, I totally agree. I think that's it. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, to go back to the representation issue, repres- I think there's no one solution to this problem of queer people feeling rejection. So we need a multifaceted solution. I think representation is part of it, but even that's not enough because I hear stories of people who, when they're young, the moment a gay scene comes on television, parent turns it off. or <laughs> No, <laughs> we're not going to look at this. So you, right away, that child has internalized the message that that mm-hmm. is absolutely not allowed. So they need to find, they need to have somewhere else in their life where they're going to encounter the message that some of you, hopefully many of you are queer and the pathway from now to adulthood is not going to be easy. I don't think, you know, uh, the, my concern with it, it gets better narrative is that it's a little bit too simplistic. It's not going to be easy, but it, it's, it's not incompatible with happiness and health. And it's going to be worth it. And it's going to be worth it. And I'm going to make it so. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's some great examples. You know, I'm thinking of Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. Oh, like they're awesome. We love you, Action Canada. Oh, Look at all the shout outs on this podcast. Okay, this is like me <laughs> positioning future podcasts. Okay, Action Canada, we are going to come for you next. <laughs> but I think, you know, the idea that sex ed is an opportunity to get queer and trans people messages that they might otherwise be missing, or maybe they already heard it, but they need to hear it 10 times or a hundred times or a thousand times mm-hmm. because the, going you're not back, getting it from the media. Like you're not getting it from the media a thousand times a day. You know? <laughs> you're definitely not getting it from the conversion therapy crowd. And, you know, and I think going back to that question of like, you know, like what is it about this stigma that's so pervasive? And I think it just takes a little bit of those negative messages and somehow those negative messages outweigh a bunch of other positive messages. So there's actually no limit to the number of times we can tell queer and trans people 
you're wanted, I see you, I value you. You matter, you're awesome. Yeah, yeah that's like, so like, awesome. Like every TV show could be a Schitt's Creek and like that wouldn't be too many um, I, affirming spaces. <laughs> did you see somebody tweeted something to Netflix that said like, why do you always have these unnecessary gay characters in your TV show. And it was amazing. Netflix tweeted back, oh, I'm sorry that you don't see that every gay person is necessary in our show. Oh, <laughs> yes, Netflix. Oh, Netflix. Yeah, we, yeah, we they're like, honestly being part of the solution there. I'm like, yeah, because they, they were just like, oh, we're sorry you don't see that, that everyone's necessary. We're sorry you don't understand that. So Travis, I'm aware of your fantastic presence and time. And I want to end so the listeners can learn a little bit more about the real you Ooh. some wild card questions. Okay. First, these are rapid wild, wild card. I was going to say wildfire. No, no wildfires here. Wild card questions. When, what are you binging on Netflix right now? Oh, well, we talked about that. It's Schitt's Creek. Oh, oh so you yeah. haven't made it through all the seasons? No, I'm oh. somewhere in season five. And oh. I keep getting spoiler alerts when it's, you know how the internet knows what you're doing. So I, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I, I open up my, my like any news site and there's like a spoiler for Shit's Creek. Oh, I love, I just finished it, uh, I think last month and it was amazing. Have you seen A Sex Education? No, but I hear great things. Oh, about it's really, it. yeah, have you yeah. seen Pose? Yes, I love uh, Pose. I need to find out. Okay, listeners, mm-hmm. if you can give me access to season two in Canada, please reach out to me because I can't find season two because we don't have cable. Okay, second question. You can go anywhere in the world pre post COVID for dinner with anybody. Where do you go and who do you take? No limits on time frames. So can, people can be any time in history. Oh, wow. Oh, history. You know, um, I mean, it, I, it could be today. It could be a century ago. <laughs> it's going to be contemporary because I have a celebrity crush and it's a very nerdy one. And it's Terry Gross. Do you know Terry Gross? No. She's the host of an NPR show called Fresh Air. Oh, cool. And I've loved her for decades. And I love her because she gets her guests to reveal information that I don't think they would reveal in an average interview. Mm, and it's like, listen to her skills. <laughs> <laughs> she's amazing. I'm a huge Terry Gross fan. Let's plug her. She can be your next guest. Oh, Terry Gross. <laughs> if you're hearing this, I want to listen to you. <laughs> and get as good as you. That's so that's who I'd have dinner with. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Final question, Travis, okay. before we, we let you out and see the beautiful Vancouver day. <laughs> what is a, wonderful piece of advice you have ever received that you'd like to share with the listeners? When I went to that standing committee last year, the chair of the standing committee was an MP from Nova Scotia who's now retired named Bill Casey. And he did a lot in those hearings that really impressed me as someone who I presume is heterosexual and cisgender, but who seemed to care very deeply about the things he was hearing in the hearings. And he, after the election, and I saw that Prime Minister Trudeau had um, mandated this bill, the ban conversion therapy, I followed up with Bill Casey because he was so nice. And I was just Mm -hmm. like so confused about the legislative process. And I asked him for advice. Um, And he gave me three pieces of advice that I'm I'm staring at right now because they were so interesting. I put them them down. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to try to write these down too. Gosh, I hope he didn't tell them to me expecting that I would keep them secret because I'm not. I think advice 
is wisdom that we need to grow collectively. Be. Yeah. <laughs> so now this is in the context of legislative processes, but I think it applies in a lot of places. His first piece of advice is nothing makes sense. Mm. because I was asking him all these questions about like, I don't understand why they're tabling this bill now. His second question was (laughs) broaden your base of support. Oh, Great. Which is really about allyship, right? Which I think is something that we know hopefully as queer people. And the third was persistence. Mm -hmm. I like those. I do too. I really like those. I'm going (laughs) to replay this so I can write them down. (laughs) That is so great. Um, So persistence brought in your base of support and nothing really makes sense. And especially in the time of COVID-19 people, like, yeah, it's all like, why is this happening? I mean, we know why, but yeah, it's all a little uncertain. Travis, you have been a fantastic guest. Uh, So so fun. Thanks for having me. I can't Um, wait to hear the other episodes of the podcast. Yes. And I would love to have you come in the future again. You're in, in hear more about how your work evolves Thank you so much, Thanks Dr. Travis Alway, a fantastic guest for the Pride podcast season. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, whatever I tell you.